Okay, here we go, live and in person. For those of you at home, uh, as I mentioned to the folks that are here, I've been forgetting to post the questions to the uh, Facebook chat, so I will change that tonight. So we're going to finish up 1 John uh, tonight. Next week we're going to go to 2 John. We're going to spend all of a night in 2 John, and then we're going to spend a night in 3 John. Um, and then it'll be Christmas. So just a few more nights here. Uh, I have decided that we are going to do first and second Peter uh, after the first of the year, starting 2021. Um, so if you are one that likes to read ahead, uh, in this case you'll be reading back, uh, but we're going to do first and second Peter. I think we will find uh, find some encouragement there. I'm pretty sure we've never done that, those two books at Timberwood. So that'll be uh, New Year, New Books. So let's uh, open up with our traditional prayer, and then we'll uh, dig into the text. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, this evening and for those of us who are gathered here, either in the present, meaning at 6.30 on Wednesday night, the second, or those that will gather at a later time uh, to engage with the content. And we just pray that you would send your Spirit among us, that as we get back into this text, that you would speak to our hearts about the things that you desire for us to learn from you, about you, uh, and about ourselves and one another. So be with us tonight, not only in the teaching, but also in the discussion. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, if you remember last time we were together, uh, John jumped ahead and stole one of our verses for tonight. Uh, if you don't remember, you're not alone because I'm guessing most people don't remember that he jumped ahead. Part of the jumping ahead, uh, some commentators put 13 with uh, the rest of five, uh, the pre previous part of 5, and they say that the end of 13 is the traditional end of the letter of 1 John and what occurs after, uh, meaning what we have as verses 14 through 21, is basically a postscript. It's, uh, oh, by the way, in case uh, you forgot or what I forgot to include earlier, uh, there's a kind of a split on that. I think it makes perfect sense that it all goes together and that the last um, sentence makes the most odd sense, that it's the last sentence and he's concluding uh, the letter there. So, uh, I write these things to you, verse 13 uh, of chapter 5, who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked for. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. 
All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So if you remember uh, first week, so, so long ago, uh, when John first taught, uh, he, he talked about kind of why is John writing this letter and, and these various references where John says, I'm writing to you because of this. And we would say that, that because of this, meaning the assurance of eternal life, is maybe the number one theme of 1 John. We've talked about it again and again and again. John is writing to his people so that they would say, when asked, do you have eternal life? They would say, yes. And how do you know that you have eternal life? Remember back to the tests that he had, um, the moral, the theological, those uh, tests that we talked about. If we walk away from 1 John and say, I know that I have eternal life, then we've succeeded in what John is trying to do in his letter and hopefully what, what we are trying to do as we gather together. So he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. You know, we've been talking about this theme of the importance of the name of Jesus. Remember a few weeks ago uh, in Philippians, uh, if you were here first service, you probably won't ever forget that Sunday. Um, I certainly won't. But the name of the Son of God, the name of Jesus, and the importance of that. That you may know that you have eternal life. Knowledge is a key component of tonight. And how do we know what we know? We've talked about this before, epistemology. um, And we're going to get into that uh, again in a little bit here. But the importance of knowing with the greatest certainty possible that we have eternal life. And he goes right into, and this is the confidence. So this, what he was referring to in the this, is the knowledge of our eternal life. Because we know we have this knowledge of eternal life, because of that, that leads to confidence in how we approach God. We've talked about this again. A lot of this is review. And how we approach God, he says, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. This importance of the power of prayer. And we talk at length, and we were talking at lunch today about we could spend weeks, we could spend weeks upon weeks upon weeks talking about what is prayer, how do we view prayer, What is the importance of prayer? How do we approach different types of prayer? And it's interesting as we approach this concept of prayer, how often we think of it in terms of requesting things from God. And as uh, some of you who have been a part of it, um, and it's very important to make this distinction, as we pointed out at lunch, If you've taken experiencing God from Tom, from Tom or with Tom, I would say from Tom, one key takeaway that people talk about all the time, many key takeaways, but one of them is the challenge that he makes to spend one week, and he'll correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure he'll 
wave his hands around saying, you're wrong, if I'm wrong, is you can't ask God for anything in your prayer life for one week. Correct? And what a radical thing that is. when we Because when we go to prayer, oftentimes we think of placing our requests before God. And what John is talking about here, it gets very interesting, and I'm going to challenge us with something similar to what Tom does in the Experiencing God class um, as we approach prayer. So one thing that's, that gets very complex is when he says, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And he chooses to use some present tense verbiage to say it's not that we're going to have them, but we already have them in the present. And it becomes this very interesting thing because, well, if you've ever prayed for something that you haven't received, you say, "Um, excuse me, I object to this passage. And in fact, I strenuously object, Your Honor, to this verse. Because there's been many things that I've asked God for that he hasn't given me, especially in the present, meaning right now. And one thing that when Maddie was uh, a toddler, um, she had this asthmatic condition where she, at night when she would go down and lay lay to go down to go to sleep, she would cough and cough and cough and cough, and I would go in there and I would lay by her bed and I would kneel on the floor and I would plead with God, God, please take this away from her. Heal her little body. Night after night after night after night, it never would go away. And when we think about this, we are challenged by this Assertion that John says, if we know that God hears our requests, we have them right now. But what is the trick? It's not a trick in the classic sense of trick. I know some of, at least one of you was thinking, that's a misuse of that word. How is it or what is it that we're asking for? If we ask anything, that's not where the the verse ends, according to his will. So if what we are requesting is in alignment with God's will, then we already have it. Because we know that God's will is going to happen, and so it will happen. We might not physically have it or you know have it in the present but it's already essentially been paid for it's like again maddie ordered this sweatshirt like 10 weeks ago she's like dad they already took money out of my account and i don't have the sweatshirt and it's been almost three months yeah that's how that works the trick though again is understanding 
what is it that we're requesting from God? And how does it align with what God's will is in our lives? That's where things get a little messy. Because we ask for things from God all the time that don't align with his will because we are, in fact, selfish. And what's interesting as we talk about this is uh, this concept of resulting that can take place where we start with a result and we work backwards to the place where it began to say, aha, this was a good decision. Or in this case, this thing happened in my life. Okay? Let's say, um, what might that thing be? Uh, How would I say this? I got a job at Timberwood Church. Okay? So I arrive at this, this position and I say, I got a job at Timberwood Church, and I go back here and I say, clearly I prayed for this, therefore it must be the will of God that I got this job. Because we start over here with the end result, and we work backwards and we say, that must be the will of God. Which works some of the time, but where it doesn't work is in this gray area where we have to ask, how much did God care about that request? Which is an interesting thing, uh, but it's one thing that I think we should spend more time in our requests asking. What is the value of this thing that I'm requesting of God, and is it something that I really want, or is it something that God wants for me? And how does this fit within the book of First John? Well, what is another key theme that we've been talking about in the book of First John? If you remember back to, I don't know, September, feels like it was a lifetime ago, one of the key themes of First John is this word that we don't ever use. It starts with an A. Remember, swimming pool. Abide, yes. If we are abiding in Christ and we are immersing ourselves in the Holy Spirit and we have this connection where we are abiding in Christ, what we will want are the things of Christ. And what we will desire is the will of God. And what we will ask for is in alignment with the will of God. And so that's where we have to think about not just pulling this section out and saying, you know, name it and claim it. Just pray about it and God wants to give you these things and you're going to have it right now and voila. But we have to think about it within the context of everything that John is saying and our desires as we abide more and more in Christ will be more and more in alignment with the will of God. And that gets challenging because part of prayer that we talked about earlier today was this place of listening. 
Because if prayer is communicating with God, we need to request, we need to talk, we need to speak to God, but we also need to listen and say, you know, what is it that you would desire for me in this situation? Rather than saying, God, this is what I desire in the situation, saying, God, I'm just going to sit here on this and just listen about what it is that you desire for me. And then see what happens. Because the hope is that our will, our desires, as we abide in Christ, would align with his, and then our requests would meet with his, and then he would answer them, because that is what he desires of us. Rather than us just throwing around requests. And then he continues. This isn't, you know, again, part of the challenge is is we see this indentation for most of us in our text into verse 16, and we think, this is a new thought. This is not a new thought. This is a continuation of what we've already been uh, talking about as it relates to prayer. Two of maybe the most controversial verses, certainly in the New Testament, Maybe in the Bible. If you want to arm wrestle about it later, we can. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God and he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. I think that's what John would say for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. To death. And like with most controversial things, we're just going to skip over it and move on to verse 18. I'm kidding. You can't hear it at home. I mean, the raucous laughter, it's just like so infectious. If you were here, you'd be laughing too, as much as I am laughing in my heart. What John is doing is he's talking about prayer and these requests that we make, and he's moving it to how do we pray for the requests or the position of other people. And we get into these weeds around what is this sin that he's talking about? Sin that leads to death. Stay away. Don't touch it. Sin that doesn't lead to death. Well, for a second, I thought... Back in Romans, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death, which is, I mean, talk about minimum wage, that's death. The wages of sin is death, so isn't all sin leading to death? And now John is saying that some sin isn't as bad because it doesn't lead to death. Oh my word, what is he even talking about? Well, there's really four potential explanations. But before that, the reason why we're not going to get into the weeds here is because... John is so nonchalant about how he approaches this, uh, these phrasings of sin that leads to death. It seems to be that it would have been common knowledge about what he was talking about. We don't know what he's talking about. So everything that we say after this is complete conjecture. And so we're just having fun speculating. But what we're not going to do is drive our stake in the ground and claim that we have the answer to this section of verses. 
So it's just like free play. You know, if you ever own a pinball machine, you take off where you have to put in the quarters, you just play for fun. That's what we're doing with these, these verses. Potential number one. What is he talking about? Unintentional sin versus intentional sin. So uh, sin that doesn't lead to death is unintentional sin. So the, um, to say it a different way, if you've ever uh, inadvertently sinned, for us we would say, oh, sorry. That's what he's talking about. You didn't realize you were sinning when you did sin, and so it's not that big of a deal. Versus intentional sin. Oh yeah, I know this is a sin, and by golly, I'm going to do it anyways. That is the sin that leads to death. That's option number, number one. Option number two is this sin that leads to death is uh, basically walking away from the faith, apostasy um, from the faith. In other words, true believers are those that, that s- commit sin that doesn't lead to death. Those masquerading as believers, we've talked about this before in, uh, in this letter, those Gnostics who were pretending to be a part of the church but weren't really a part of the church, those people, when they sin, that sin leads to death because they're not true believers. They haven't uh, been regenerated. That's a possibility. Uh, similar to that, a third option is this blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. You know, when we get into talking about this unpardonable sin that, that people want to talk about, you know, sin that leads to death is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's what John is talking about. Um, the challenge with, with some of these is when he says, if you see a brother committing this type of sin. So he's already set the stage for the person that he's talking about is somebody who is within the church already. And so, in that context, why would this brother, a true brother or sister in Christ, blaspheme the Holy Spirit or even have the ability to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? That's option number three. Option number four is literal, literally, dying. Literal, physical death. So, um, In the Old Testament, there was clearly examples, and even in the New Testament, where people commit a sin and then they die. So physical sins that lead to physical death. Um, The challenge with that is there's this back and forth between uh, sin sin that does not lead to death and talking about life in a spiritual sense but then crossing over and talking about death in a literal sense seems to uh, blur the lines of what John is trying to communicate. So those are the really the four options around this idea of sin that leads not to death and sin that leads to death. Really the challenge, though, with it is 
why do we care so much? Like, why is it so important for us to qualify and classify categories of sin? Like, it, I have this project, and I don't know if it'll get off the ground, but it's at least in the, um, the planning phase of if we were to do a survey where we took uh, people that identify as evangelical Christians and, and we say, okay, rank the top five worst sins. And then we would take all those numbers and it'd be kind of like the school board vote and the top three or top five vote getters would be the top five sins for that group. And then we would take uh, a group of non-church people. We do the same thing. And then we would do it... Uh, not only here in Minnesota, but then we do it in the U.S., then we do it in the U.K., and we, we'd come up with all these different things, and, and we would compile them together, and we would realize that we wouldn't be even close <laughs> to agreeing on what the absolute worst sins are because there's no such thing. <laughs> God doesn't qualify, okay, yeah, this sin really bad. Remember we talked about this? Like, that's like bad, bad. How do we refer to it as? Really bad. And, and, and this sin is like, well, just a sin. It doesn't matter. But it's interesting because the context that John puts it in is when you see someone else doing this. And I think part of what John is trying to communicate is you know, this letter is about unifying this group of people and how often we see somebody else sinning and we're like, oh, phew. Did you see that? Did you see that person? That person right there, did you see that sin? We don't think it to ourselves because we got to share it with somebody because if you have an experience by yourself, it's not nearly as much fun as if you share it with somebody else. So you're like, David, did you see the sin on that person? That's really bad. And David's like, yeah, I'm so glad I don't do that. And then we're like, Keith, check out that sin. And then what do we do? We're just rumorizing about that person as this other person who is, without, is outside the bounds of forgiveness of sin. And it's completely destructive. It's not helpful. It's not helpful for us. It's not helpful for that person by any means. And it's not helpful for the kingdom of God or the body of Christ. And, and Amy is reading a uh, Miroslav Volf book, and one of his things that sticks out to me over and over and over again is we draw this box and we place ourselves within the box and then we put our enemies outside the box. And in this case, uh, those people whose sins can be forgiven, of course, I'm in the middle, and that guy or gal, they're outside the box. So now I can treat that person differently than I treat everyone that I draw within my box. And John says, that's not helpful. It's not helpful for you. It's not helpful for them. It's not helpful for the body of believers. What he is saying is, 
when we see a brother or sister who's sinning, we should pray for them. Revolutionary concept. Part of it is, when we pray for somebody, we immediately make this connection with them, and it breaks down any sort of divide that can be built up uh, between us. When we pray for somebody, we have this immediate connection, and we say, I too struggle with sin. Oh, not as bad as your sin. No, we don't do that. We don't do that. That is the, not the point. We say, you sin, and I sin, and I'm praying for you because God loves you, and I need you to pray for me because I sin as well. So rather than trying to focus in and figure out, crack the code around the sin that leads to death so that I can exclude people, because in essence, that's what we try to do. If this person is such a horrible, terrible, no good, very bad sinner then I don't have to pray for them. Because John says not to pray for them, which is not actually what he says. What he's saying is this very peculiar grammatical sentence. He says, I do not say that one should pray for that. So is he saying, don't pray for that? No, he's saying, I'm going to stay neutral. I'm not saying yes, I'm not saying no. I think what he's saying is, it's up to you. And my challenge for us is how our prayer lives can be so a participation in navel-gazing that we miss out on what prayer is supposed to look like. We make all these requests for ourselves, our friends, but really that becomes like about us, rather than only praying for other people. So, in this case... Rather than saying, you know, the classic, the classic story, you know, the, the Pharisee standing in the temple and saying, you know, thank you, Lord, that I'm not as bad as that guy. <laughs> Let's not be doing that. What if we said, how can I pray for every person that I come in contact with and not for myself? So the challenge this in this is, what if for the next, okay, you, I mean, like, we're committed, right? It's, it's a Wednesday night in December, and we're all here. We're committed. Even people at home, they're committed because they could be watching Ted Lasso for the second, third, fourth time, and they're watching this. So they're committed too. What if we committed to the entire Advent season where we would not ask God for anything that relates to us? 
and that we would pray only for other people. It's an interesting concept. And I know some people are going to push back and say, yeah, not in. But what if we took on this challenge that John says, pray for your brothers and sisters that you come in contact with. And I would say, pray for all those we come in contact with. And not just when I'm sitting at home in my prayer chair. Another fun conversation we had today. You know, prayer isn't a thing we do. It's a part of how we live. And it's not like, okay, I wake up and I have my 15 minutes of prayer and then I go throughout the rest of my day and then I have my 15 minutes of prayer at the end of the day. It's just a part of who I am. It's, it's when I'm going around and talking to God and listening to God all throughout my day and it's not just this formalized thing that, that does have a part to play But when we're walking into the grocery store and we say, we see somebody, we're like, Lord, I don't know what they're going through, but be with them. You know, when we see the parent challenged by their young kids in the grocery store, rather than thinking, Oh, I wish they would get it together. What if we would say, God, they must be going through such a challenging time. May your spirit be with them. It would completely change how we view people. And and I've been parental shamed before when my kids were young, and frankly, now that my kids are even older, I know that I'm parental shamed. And the bottom line is, when we take this position that John says, pray for those people around you and the sins that they're struggling with, it changes us and it changes them and it changes the body. And then he concludes with three assertions. He says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. What? So he concludes with these three assertions. And uh, this is a great quote from uh, a person that some of you may know and one of you may worship, I mean, be very fond of. His name is Martin Luther. He says, Nothing is more familiar or characteristic among Christians than assertion. Take away assertions and you take away Christianity. When do you, you, 
assert that you find no satisfaction in assertions and that you prefer an undogmatic temper to any other. We love assertions. I mean, in essence, that's what the statement of faith is. This is what we believe in. Or to say it as John does, these are the things that we know. And he uses this Greek word for know that has far more certainty around it. It's not just this assenting to a, a, a position, but actually like living in our being knowledge. There's two different, there's gnosko, which is kind of like a, a factual trivia uh, type of knowing, and then there's this hoida, which is this like deep-seated knowledge, life-changing knowing. And that's the word that he uses here. We, the body, that's who he's talking about, we know this, man. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So what about the sin that doesn't lead to death and all? Again, John can be very confusing for us. And we've wrestled with this like... I know that I keep on sinning. I know this because I experience it. Last night, we're, we're trying to, we had fixed Wyatt's snowmobile and then it wasn't fixed and I'm like, Gah! and I definitely committed some sins. You're like, well, you must not be born of God because John says, if you're born of God, you don't sin. You don't keep on sinning. You don't live a life that is patterned after the world, which is this sin and living in darkness. We've talked about this. We've been talking about this throughout this entire book. How, why is that? Because we are protected by God. We're protected. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit. So that the evil one... Or to quote the church lady, could it be Satan can't affect us? Whew. That's good news. That is good news. If we are been born of God, if we have said yes to Jesus Christ, to the Holy Spirit comes in us, and God says, I got you, I protect you, Satan can't do anything to you. He can't touch you. What he can do is this. I'm not touching you. I'm not touching you. You know how that game goes. I'm not touching you. Aren't we kind of relieved we weren't supposed to travel for Thanksgiving so we didn't have our kids in the back seat fighting with each other? My mom was reminiscing about Stories that I've long forgotten about driving up to Pillager for Thanksgiving and epic snowstorms and all of us, after my parents were divorced, she's driving, we leave Pillager, massive snowstorm, headed back to the state formerly known as South Dakota. The boys are sleeping. She's white-knuckling it. I'm like, yeah, I don't remember that. At least we weren't fighting. We know that when we've been born of God, we are protected 
I mean, how incredible is that? Satan can't touch us. He can get really close, but he cannot touch us. That is, oh, that's so good. He can get really close, but he cannot touch us. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Another important assertion. We know that we are on the winning team. And then he says, And we know that the Son of God has come, Jesus has come, and has given us understanding, knowledge, understanding, so we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, In His Son, Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. Remember, part of what John, again, is writing into is this bevy of false information and the Gnostics and the the heretics that were trying to pull people away and and spread these lies about who God is and how you come to faith and all of these things and and what true faith is and and Jesus wasn't fully God and and all of of these things that, that we still battle with. And John is saying, if we are in Christ, if we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, then we have access to the truth. The true God, true relationship, everything that is true in the purest sense of the word true. We don't have to go searching around to... How does it go, Russ? Trust but verify? We don't have to do that. We have the truth. There's no, you know, somebody hacked into my Facebook account and and locked me out. They're like, you're not old enough. And John Walter's like, you need two-party authentication. We don't need that with God. He's true. He is the truth. And we have the truth. I mean, come on. John's back there and you're like, you can't handle the truth. Were you thinking that? You just wanted to, you wanted to rip your mask off. And, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> and then maybe one of the most peculiar yet fitting endings to a book of the Bible. Oh, by the way, you little kids don't have any idols. See you later. But it's fascinating because we, when we think of idols, what do we think of? Yes. These things, small little things or big things or monoliths that appear and disappear in the middle of the desert. That's not exactly what John is trying to communicate. The whole idea around this letter of John is knowing who God is, assurance of eternal life, abiding in Christ, 
being more and more like Christ. And an idol is anything we place between us and God. Anything that takes the place of God in our life is an idol. And more and more, it's far less physical things and far more immaterial things. And this ending of this book struck me so hard when I was in college, after I'd graduated, I was, I was on my way to Denver Seminary and then get a PhD and all of these things. And God came, spoke to me, and he said, Eric, you're in love with knowledge of me, not me. And so we finish this book with, we know this, and we know this, and we know this. And John says, don't let knowledge or anything else, power, influence, the world, authority, any of these things, become in front of your connection with you and Jesus Christ. There is only one place for God, a God, the God, and that is Jesus Christ in your life. And anything you try to place between that is an idol. Do not do that. And I was just like, wow, okay. Let's move to New Mexico to a beach. Live in a trailer house. It's a, little diff- it's a little different. John has said so many amazing things to us, and he concludes with, and if you only get one thing, I've, I've said you only get one thing about three different things, so choose your own adventure. Don't place anything in the position of Jesus Christ in your life period. That's it. End of letter until the next letter. So, one, two, looks like uh, one and one. One group and one group. I'll post the, uh, don't, uh, don't shut me down, I'll post the questions, but you folks that are here, you can go to your uh, designated discussion groups for your discussion.